This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Harold Broadkey's story, Dumbness is Everything, which was published in The New Yorker in 1996. When the car stopped, when the motor vibration and noise stopped, and the wheels were still, the drunkenness shufflingly bulged and was dizzying more than before. It pulsed in my head, stung my eyes, and rang. The story was chosen by Michael Cunningham, who is the author of seven novels, including The Hours and last year's The Snow Queen. His own fiction first appeared in The New Yorker in 1988. Hi, Michael. Hello, Deborah. So Dumbness is Everything is one of the last things that Broadkey wrote before he died in 1996, and it was published posthumously in the magazine a few months later. Why did you choose this story? For several reasons. I knew Harold. I not only knew Harold, he was a hero of mine when I was in school of, let's just say, you know, was I the kind of kid who would call you at midnight and read you a long passage <laughs> of Harold Broadkey, whether you wanted to hear it or not? Yes, I was. And, you know, years pass, calendar pages flip, seasons change, and I met him and got to know him and, and knew him somewhat through his illness and his demise. It is, as I think... Everyone will soon understand a slightly unorthodox choice. Mm -hmm. It's kind of extreme in many ways, but that is part of what drew me to it. And, of course, the fact that it's not only one of the last things Harold wrote. However people feel about the story, the vitality he was still able to summon... I know how sick he was when he wrote this. It's a little bit like that mythical mother lifting the car off the child. (laughs) I I can't believe that in Extremis, he could still summon this much juice and this much fire. And that's part of why I wanted to read it as some kind of testament, not Mm -hmm. only to Harold, but to the inexhaustibility that keeps it going. When you first met Harold Brocky and you first got to know him, did the person live up to what the 19-year-old college student fell for? No, it was a funny moment. I first met Harold, the New Yorkers, years ago, was doing a series in which they would invite an established writer and a much newer writer to have a conversation on stage. Harold was the established writer. I was the distinctly unestablished (laughs) (laughs) writer. Harold and I were meeting for dinner with the lovely Daniel Manneker, who was a fiction Mm -hmm. editor here at The New Yorker then. I literally had to walk around the block in order to try to become somebody who could meet Harold Broadkey. <laughs> Did it work? Well, no. It was the same person. Uh, you know, walking around the block actually does not, does not produce the kind of transformation <laughs> you might hope. So I realized I was going to have to meet Harold as the person that I was. And, you know, hello, Harold. I'll get this out of the way quickly. I'm a huge fan. We don't need to dwell on that. But but it's, it's you know, I because, you know, you should... You should mention that, and then you should let it go. Mm -hmm. And dinner progressed, and Harold was 
so imperious and so disdainful towards me. And I began to suspect that it had something to do with my youth. <laughs> it's like Harold wasn't taking to me. And I finally, toward the end of dinner, said to Harold Brodke, who I had lionized, who I had read, I'd stayed up all night long to read and flunked my philosophy final because I was reading Harold Brodke and said, I, I looked at Harold across the table in a restaurant in the Upper West Side and said, are you going to be this horrible when we do the Q&A for The New Yorker? <laughs> and he kind of, no, I don't, I don't think I need to be this horrible. <laughs> Which I think it would be romantic to say that that broke the ice and made us friends, but something somehow... We did the Q&A, and it went just fine, and we were friends ever after. And when you were first reading him as a kid, more or less, what was it that you connected to in the work so much? The main thing was the extravagance mm -hmm. of the language, the utterly unembarrassed embrace of incredibly elaborate, sometimes, I'm the first to admit it, over-the-top language. This was especially meaningful to me because when I was younger and beginning to think maybe, maybe I could try to write something someday myself, it was all about lean and clean. It was all Bauhaus. It was all no ornamentation. A semicolon was considered <laughs> a little much. And here was Harold Brodke writing not only in this wildly elaborate language, putting words together in, in the way the German language does, mm -hmm. sort of making compound words that aren't actually in the dictionary, but also the extravagance of feeling and of introspection and the fact that if most of what I was reading were sort of terse little tales that say pretty much on the exterior, here was Harold writing about two women of a certain age having cocktails on a porch as if he were chronicling the Crimean War. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no human emotion. There is no human contradiction. There's no thought too small for Harold Brodsky to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a don't-try-this-at-home quality to the work. Oh, absolutely. You see a lot of fake Ray Carver. Yeah. You see a lot of fake Dennis Johnson. You don't see much fake Harold Brodke. Go, go ahead. Give it a try. <laughs> so this story, which was published in 1996, looks mm -hmm. back actually at a time in the 1950s. Yeah. And it involves the character Wiley, who was in a way Brodke's alter ego in many other pieces, and his girlfriend Aura when mm -hmm. they are young lovers. Mm -hmm. Do you think of it as a nostalgic piece? No. I wouldn't have chosen it if I thought of it as mm -hmm. a nostalgic piece because I hate nostalgia. <laughs> Harold wrote very autobiographically, could really only, I think, write about that which had happened to him. His imagination was sufficiently engaged by what he had experienced, and mm -hmm. I think trying to invent a character or a situation would have felt just like 
crazy to him. There's so much to write <laughs> yeah, about. The without entire that. story of, of, <laughs> of, of all creation is, yeah. is present in your own life. So I think of it as a sort of a twist in the time-space continuum. Mm-hmm. It, it's Harold's ongoing insistence that any moment in the past is just a parallel present. It's just a present that isn't happening right now. And this story is, to me, it's simply a story that takes place in the present of 1954, Mm -hmm. which is not the present Harold occupied when he wrote it. Well, we'll talk more after the reading. And now here's Michael Cunningham reading Dumbness is Everything by Harold Brodke. Dumbness is Everything. One time, Ora and I were very drunk after a party in Bronxville. A large, milling, snotty but shy, defensive and prying and young and rich suburban Gentile crowd with the usual party sexuality like a heated cloud. This was around 1954, and we were living down the road from Betty and Irving's in what had been a farmer caretaker's cottage. Betty was Ora's aunt, her mother's sister. Betty's mother and father had lived on this Westchester hilltop, the top of this steep ridge, and they had bought up two or three more places, enlarging their own. Betty's father was from Ohio and was a respectable sort, a front man for gangsters in the hotel and money laundering business. Betty's mother had been a pretty woman, bright, afraid of boredom. This part of the neighborhood had not been fashionable. A Ziegfeld star had lived here, one who bathed in ass's milk. Two farms were still in operation. Most of the five remaining large houses belonged to Jews or to Ora's mafia-aligned grandparents. Our cottage has no garage. We used the one at the main house, a wooden building painted a very white and set at the end of a short, steep, tightly curved driveway overshadowed by oaks. We'd had the top down in the car. I'd put it up when we got near home for privacy where we were known, as in the lighted gas station or by the local police who kept watch on the place when no one was there. I was too drunk to drive into the garage, and I laughed at this and sat there in the car on the tarred apron built up on one side to be level in front of it. I'd taken off my jacket when we left the party and had unbuttoned my shirt a little way so that the cool air would help me control my drunkenness while I drove. I'd driven soberly as an act of will. You can do that. You can stand outside your drunkenness just as you can stand outside the sentences and ideas of the decade. When the car stopped, when the motor vibration and noise stopped and the wheels were still, the drunkenness shufflingly bulged and was dizzying more than before. It pulsed in my head, stung my eyes and rang and banged. I felt encased in invisible water, drowning. I willed the drunkenness to be quiet. (laughs) We made it, I said. Ora and I had been stiff, and as if counting the moments and miles, not certain this wasn't the night of disaster, of a wrecked car, perhaps of death, or our being crippled. Coming home, we talked a little about the party, about who made passes at whom. As it got later, while we drove north, we began to speak to each other with the stiffest intellectuality we could manage, 
of the sort we had been taught in the style of the late 1950s at Harvard and Radcliffe. We discussed Epictetus, Hegel, Santiana. We tried to make our drunkenness traditional or something. We were living up to college standards. We spoke a bit about anti-Semitism and intellectuality, and we were alternately very grand, and we giggled often. Although not about being serious, but about being drunk, and about the mindless architecture of the highway, of how the Taconic Parkway was placed. She was drunker than I was, but when she was drunk, she behaved with a rigid sobriety that was drunken only with a kind of underlying obscenity. She was a good-sized young woman in invade against things. Some of it came from her social class, as if she carried a horsewhip or a rifle. She was not ever at peace with that part of herself, but had a refuge or retreat into an obscenely sturdy wildness of spirit. Almost a rich girl's pretension. And her pet dichotomy, uh, that was a word she loved, between life as boredom and life as wickedness. She had to piss often when she was drunk, but she was very good-looking. And the attempts on her were usually made in the back halls near the bathroom. In the car, she had been careful not to move much because that would agitate the saucepan and make it slop over. Still, we had stopped three times and then had settled into the endurance contest of getting home, perhaps our realer home, than was the apartment in the city. I don't know. The immensity of the view was behind us and off to one side. We had an immensity of silence, an immensity of warmish wind, a breeze really, but not stopping and starting, not made of individual hooks and curls, but because of the great width of the night air, riverine hugely animal and ghostly, a whispering dragon of a wind. Aura had taken her shoes off, and she got one back on, a single high-heeled shoe. She turned her face toward me and said, Kiss me. Do you feel sexy? No one was there, in the main house or in the three smaller ones on the property. The trees were there, an immense copper beech snuffling in the breeze, and some larches and maples, firs and spruces. The slope opened to a view, sky and stars, distant hills and implicit valleys, farms back then, and comfortable small towns, soon to be suburb. We had a scattering of lights above and below, stars and houses. The ones below indicated lives with less money to spend than there was up here. I have to pee, Wiley, she said, and I don't know if I can walk. I put my arms under hers and kind of pull shifted her until her thighs were spread, until her legs were mostly in a sexual posture. She was usually verbally forward, the aggressor in speech, but physically she was passive and full of waiting. Perhaps there was a style back then. Her heavy head, her marvelous skin, her hair pressed against my cheek. I lifted her skirt and got her panties off over the one high heel. 
The night air, the bright albino watch face moon with its blurred random wholeness, the stiffly assaulting breeze and my head ringing with drunkenness, of course. It's all a lost world now. Those farms so near New York City and my youth and drunkenness. The relief and not being dead and the social immensities of the time, the nearness and distance in the view of that vast, restless, rural, semi-rural district and its local yeomanry and the strangeness of the hour of being in love. Our elevation on this high ridge, which was not fashionable, which was for outsiders, but it was beautiful. This land set so high. Everything here was fictional and touched with brevity and with a greatly skewed, faintly Gatsbyoid romance. The warm wind, the moonlight, the strength of her body, the diminished dark as my eyes adjusted. In those days, her face was never boring. Even she was not bored by her face. I helped her hobble across the driveway. No one could see us from the road. I mean, the road was angled and headlights would not illuminate us. She clung to me and said, this is too open. I held her up and we went behind the corner of the garage. A kind of warmth came off the wood of the garage and a damp coolness rose from the grass. Are there any animals, she asked. At the back of the garage was a stone wall, partly overgrown, and beyond it, a field of now young timber that had been farmed through part of the war eight years ago, ten. You could hear the emptiness. You could hear and see and feel that no one was there, that few animals had survived. The moon illuminated part of the garage, and then it was so very dark. I held her and checked the grass with my feet. Go over there, she said. Don't look. I leaned against the garage. The feel of the paint and of the temperature of the wood came through my shirt. And I loved myself, both as a kind of machine of registry of such things, and for being a little rich, and for being young, and on this hilltop or side of a ridge. And I loved her more, or was amorous or attached because of the thing of our minds being set at such angles that I could let her describe me to myself. She expected me to love myself be angrily poetic, faintly savage. She taught me, kind of. I took off my shirt so she could wipe herself with it, but she didn't want to use it, so I handed her a sassafras leaf from a nearby sapling. First, though, were the sensations of the wood on my thin-skinned bare back and the shirt dangling from my hand and the sounds of aura pissing on the grass, the wet whistling whisper of that, and the air. And then the heroism, sexual, too, of trying to live. Lechery stirred in a winged fashion. Each element of the self is a fashioner of the air, and of such moments. The arms bathed in air. The queer onrush of sexual dramatization. You know, of how the two of you do it, the roles, the longing, 
and perhaps the wish to use one's party self, the young woman and the boy-turned-young man. As long as you're squatting there. She looked up. I partly undid my pants. She always had a queer reaction to my doing things, a reaction of excitement to my initiating things. She was imprisoned and then not entirely freed. It was as if she slid deeper into a kind of burrow that was if she accepted the invitation. Sometimes she hesitated. Still, some element of negotiation remained. And there was power in her, too. Is it power that stirs my now clearly animate flesh? Or is it a shuffling cowardice, fucking when we're drunk, moving within her daydreams, her ideas of sexuality? Is it a distraction of the will? Again, I offer the shirt, the sassafras leaf. Aura uses her finger and some grass and stands. My bare arm supports her, touches her. She can stand and balance. The weight of Aura leaning on me is sultry and real. I put my hand inside the loose-fitting, wide-shouldered blouse she wore. She is a powerful sexual presence. The party had been partly for me for signing a contract to write a movie for the youngish guy whose house it was, and Aura had dressed herself for playing second fiddle. A guy at the party, very drunk, said she was the devil's Venus. She had on a white cardigan, unbuttoned. The night slid and shuffled. Now her blouse was below her breasts. Her brow was absurd. The drunkenness made me alive all over my body, as when I was a boy. Leaning on one another, pausing now and then to kiss, we crossed the black lawn in the silent and unlaboring moonlight. The path wound in the enclosed setting of lawns and flower beds, past main house and two giant beaches with their vaguely silver, shattered, moonlit faces, and under some maples and past more flower beds and hedges and a stone patio terrace. Aura, weighty and real, solid-bodied, gleaming vaguely, leaned on me, permissively, negotiatingly, as we moved in the dark. Where the lawn was open behind a large house, she gripped my dong to balance out my soft night air palping and stroking of her bare breasts. Bare-breasted, sugary-breathed from the alcohol, faintly wet-skinned, we shared a snuffling, drunken kiss under a murmuring, chattering beach. The night spread away below us. How far does sound carry? I don't know. Now, I don't want an audience. I slipped my feet out of my shoes, cut her shoe off with my bare foot, pants, her skirt, her cardigan. Now we're naked, but in the moonlight. Can we be seen? Can, can anybody hear us? Nah, it's just us and the spirits, I whispered. I'm scared of the dark. Under the tree, a joke. Aura's body is a landscape, a climate, or a kind of boat for my feelings. She doesn't dance comfortably, 
or wriggle or seduce with her body. There is some huge gulf between her body as visible and affecting you and its inward or private reality for her as heat, and that divergence is what you touch. You touch the weird vivacities of the burrows of her body and their games of entry were hers. Her body itself was the caryatid columned porch of those moments. Perhaps I elected her body in something like the heavy way she elected me, brute of the moment, long-legged sexual demi-demon and commander. Not that I was or wasn't those things, but that was her sexual projection for me. A game, maybe. It was like being plunged into a dictionary of her life with secret moments in it written out, although not in language I could understand. The overweening handsomeness of her first guy in high school was part of what she conferred, maybe dreamily, on me. We are each in a category of desire relating to pride, which is not unusual, but which perhaps condemns us two spoiled creatures on the high, sloping, moonlit lawn among flower beds, some with wooden or stone statues and with hedges like walls. Much of the event is lost inside the moment, hidden from language. <laughs> we didn't make it from the car to the cottage. We fucked in the lawn. Laura kept a diary in which she also wrote, perhaps this will be a famous diary. What we have here is a shuffling set of drunken fields of attention. The phallus in the night air, the white, faintly dry branch of self, unpreapic, and then preapic as hell, a silent violence of implication, and the odor of grass and of lilies. Rich, rich, the knight murmured. The boy is inside the man. On our country property, as in a dream, but it is life. I owe you a good love poem, Laura. I owe you a good love poem, Laura. Laughing silently in the tenacity of my drunkenness, I stumbled and boyishly released her rather than take her with me to the grass. And whirling and falling from my height, and on the slope so that my head plunged seven feet, whirringly. Me and my branch-like prick, and me landing on my side, and then turning on my back. Ah, there are stars, leaves, night yews, moon, the stink of grass, the grip of half-silent laughter, then loud, foolish laughter. Hush, don't. Aura bends over. Oh, the breasts. Oh, the breasts. Oh, the oddity of breasts. Oh, the weight of recurring innocence, of virginity returned. The weight, again, of present tense ignorance and darkness. A kind of confusion. Her breath, her shoulders, her head. A timor felicitatis fear of happiness and of its loss, a fear of her reality having power, a fear of moonlight and of my own desire. How I grip, and with what ferocity, 
thick, motionful sheaves of her long, handsome hair. How I own and control the dark, horse-like moment, and am ridden myself by duty and pride. By her as audience, by her and me as audience, ah, ah, ah. And the jolt of falling, traveling through my bones, did hurt my balls and my drunkenness disdaining prick. Oh, my God. <laughs> I cannot stand being alive, I said to her. Well, she said, slightly mush-mouthed, hand on my prick, other hand on my arm, then on my chest, exciting herself, owning me, feeling me. That is the way you are, Wiley. Mm, big mouth. Big mouthed evil girl kisses Jew on the grass. I never liked the way she kissed unless I directed her. On her own, she kissed too thickly for my taste. Drunkenly, I saw the usefulness of disliking her kiss, its usefulness as a plot device. It goaded me to roll on top of her, a little more down the slope, on the tickling, faintly harsh grass. I want to control the sloppiness of her kiss, turn it into a sensual coherence. In disdain, to withdraw from the kiss, to rise to a half-sitting position, commandingly, as if punishingly. Ah, ah, the extraordinary uninnocence of the event, despite my being innocent and stupid or stupid and, I don't know, somehow it was all of a piece. I stroked her in an aware way. I said, let's ruin your dress her skirt, really, which I tried clumsily to place under her while mock entering her. Here on the grass, she said. Yeah, here on the grass. The moon will see us, she said, in the style of plays and movies she admired. Shh, I said. In our cottage, as in the apartment in the city, she went around pulling shades, although we were not visible. She required privacy. She liked secret sexual perspectives or was imprisoned in them. She objected even to the moon. This fine-eyed, astoundingly good-looking, strongly-made woman loves her clichés. I have a big brain, she says. Then she abandons or loses the thought. <laughs> I'm drunk. I, I like this. She said the last in a kind of college way. We met and first fucked at college. Her thoughts are hidden from me behind the bones of her forehead, of her skull, of her great prettiness. Her eyes in moonlight do not convey bodily acceptance, but radiate attention. The boniness of her relents and what spills out from her in a kind of stink of promptness is sexual invitation to the burrows. That courage of hers, that thing of sexual readiness, that inert tension of whether to be active or still, but inviting anyway, I love that. I love it deeply. On the steep slope of the semi-mountain lawn, the trees and me, drunkenly, reelingly, risen over her, 
and the nursery dirtiness of our drunkenness. She says, this will be a dirty fuck. Perhaps she means, this will be great sex. Shut up, I said. From within the same fictional world, I mean, it was me, but I was playing my role. The moist ground and the moonlight. I was cautious and did not name myself. I was a structure of hiddenness, as she was, but differently. Here, the circus trick, the trapeze thing, was to be logical in a drunken moment on a sloping lawn with a specific woman at a specific moment in her life. In mine, too. In a specific year, a specific fuck. And then to be logical about it. Aura said, with praise that is a little gritty with insult in regard to her ambitions, her fantasies, her fictional world. You are king. This is a king's garden. She said pornographically, having a say. It is a king's prick. I whispered tyrannically, regally. Yeah, I used to love my large white prick. Hey, Aura, no propaganda, just fuck, okay? She always hated my saying that. To be logical is to recognize the free symmetries, where one act is free-willed, sort of, and the other, in response, is not as free to be unsymmetrical. The curious movements of the selves are ambitious. Male free will ignores her. Female free will drifts off into fantasy or other absence. Love and flight, the Eurydice thing, not blinking, not looking back, not holding back. To whatever extent I don't fantasize or withdraw into myself or respond to her directing, I hold her astonished physical gaze. But this depends on my finding her phallically exciting. A dialogue exists. She doesn't bounce or drift into feeling and then return. She's willfully present in a way that is unloving. But it is love as she does it. For each of us, she writes the dialogue, and I astonish her out of that daydream. There are conditions and circumstances of touch and posture, the role you play in the kiss and the licking, and elements of courage, of sexual courage, of wit and of sophistication, of a kind in her that don't necessarily match my moods, my nerve endings. I like a kind of storytelling structure and a confession of who you are. When I touched or nuzzled Aura, she often couldn't do the dance of response, but she grew warm and welcoming. She seemed to be reacting to the drama, to what I did, but really to something inside herself. She was safe from me at the bottom of flight after flight of steps so to speak. Who she was, I mean the person, and then the overlay of how she had been taught and how she had rebelled, was interesting to me, but not a lot, since it seemed like a cage she was in. She never really confessed. She negotiated and did what she considered her part. 
I didn't like her notions of wildness or routine stuff. Her versions didn't permit much feeling or made feeling a curious thing surrounded by critical recognitions, little O's and ah's. That was goods. That was the goods. She liked that kind of thing. I don't know how much of that was her and how much was a social class and a Gentile thing. Sophistication? Well, each fuck is the edge of the end of the affair, of not caring, or of being angry and set on cheating, or being mysteriously or unmysteriously set free. It's weird. And then that doesn't happen quite. You're not set free. Well, drunkenness sets you free somewhat, at least to a flow of connections, undulations, into modulations of mood. But she was too movie-like and, and not funny when we were on the slope. So I said, not here, there, rolling her over on the grass and rolling with her. Roll you over in the clover. It made her slightly dizzy, and she gasped and grinned, suddenly amused. She was more frightened of feeling than of me, of the loss of her powers of negotiation. But I didn't want to lose my male powers. We had these masks. Some of her fright was of losing me. But it wasn't so great, the fucking her. It was like dancing or a pas de deux. I mean, she liked my presence, liked it steamily, but not as much as I would have liked from her, or which I had had versions of with other people. Now, in a way, a life's story would be a book of fucks, wouldn't it? She wants me to let go of myself and do what I like. She says so. She means the two-character fuck. She's being generous and, in her terms, loving. I slap her butt sharply. On my knees, I roll and tumble her smartly. At first, she laughs, but then she grows recalcitrant. She kind of grunts, rises from the waist, and hugs me. Ah, oh, she is strong-armed, wet-mouthed, wild-haired. There's something of a fake in the pouring moonlight. She wants me to pose as the commander, to dance in the moonlight, to be lightly brutal and grunt and plunge drunkenly. She wants me to show her my sexual secrets, my nursery secrets, my locker room secrets. We elude each other, but not completely. You can't assume a primary asymmetry of the selves. Something in us fits with one another. The vibration of similar pain, similar selves in part, somehow similar. My mind does lose its sexual attentiveness toward her, but not to myself, which slows down the accumulation of that hot, luminous throbbing that indicates the nearness of orgasm. She stiffens faintly, matter of seconds, she knows that quickly. It happens two or three times. A stroking, a manipulation of the breast. We are now in the realm of secondary theatricalization. 
It seems like a moment of virginity. It seems like a moment of virginity because she's new to this. I start to laugh in the night air. Women mostly know how virginal or unvirginal they are, but Aura is like a man in this. This other sense of consciousness, of being untouched, unpenetrated. The moments of tumbling her and the moment of the slap on her largish, moonlight-whitened and moonlight-shadow-folded butt and the sight of her marvelously beautiful back, where when I moved past her sexual experience and became the unvirginal or dirty one, the preapic demon, a bad male, and she became the wronged, slightly angry, slightly huffy, well-educated virgin. She laughed out loud, too, gasped, maybe, and I was alone. Moonlight and the dark and the starlight, madman in his laboratory with a banded edge. I back away from it. Eyesight returns. The rich lawn, trees, slope, moonlit sky, a great oval of lighter darkness in it. The moonlight, bits of light spread in bodiless thorns, making a half radiance in the deep blackness. And in this moment, she fled, too, fled inwardly, either frightened or betrayed, a watching nymph, but a dirty-minded one, not a virgin. And everything got more theatrical and, as it were, mathematical, the two of us, minds and bodies, spirits and drunkenness. I mean, there was a kind of social class thing in Aura, a sexual, social class thing, sort of the inferiority of other people showed the inferiority of their consolations. She wasn't entirely sure of this, but she was fairly certain. She had experimented. She had experienced some sense of inner darkness and of wrong invitation in the other. What I always felt as a dirty landscape, the dirty landscape of sex, with its queer coils of space in one place, its queerness as journey and as instruction and as darkness and light. When one of us failed in a moment, the other was often mysteriously symmetrical in failure, but not always. I mean, it wasn't an exact incestuous echo, but a weirdity. You didn't know where to put your feet, your prick, your sexual anima, your soul. You hide it. You pretend to assurance. The moment opens up, and you see and feel your ignorance like blindness, as everyone says, and you peer outwardly. It flashes around the universe and comes back and is inward in some queer, reciprocal, fleshly elbow and knee and crotch and cunt geometry, which is higher and less easily measurable than symbols on paper are. But you see that each freedom to act is a kind of prison demanding you act, that each iota of overlordship or privilege is a whipgoat of do this, do that. You see each reciprocity as a failure and goad until orgasm frees you and you see each refusal of reciprocity as an invitation and a reciprocal thing somehow, but in the oh-my-God mode. The very violence, 
or edge of violence stuff is instinct with a queer binding and blinding tenderness. Blind girl, blind Samson, blind Delilah. But it is only us here, and drunkenness softens sexual vision by deepening it. Like the moonlit bright night sky with the thorns of light on the lawns, among the leaves, and in the flower beds. Anyway, in the depths of a moment, we're laughing and kissing. And I'm kind of active, and Aura is not. What is mostly there is ignorance. Just like when you're exploring philosophy, and the more ignorance you admit to, the more sophisticated you are, provided the ignorance you admit to is the right sort. Dumbness is everything. I am looming over her, holding both her breasts. The demonic and sour glee, the biting and choking stuff that she likes, sort of, I'm strong, I'm potent, I don't need anyone. I don't do it much. I think she is deluded. There is excitement in play-acting this, or in really dominating and scaring someone. Holding back becomes a complicated issue. Ora knew it, or part of it. She said, you are the daring young man on the flying trapeze. I said stupidly, you are really incredible, goddamned, fucking, dipply, beautifully, fucking beautiful. God, Ora. She liked that loosening of class line stuff. Pressing and rubbing, I knew somehow just how loud to gasp, to thrill her with shock, but not so loud it shocked her out of all her feelings. I whispered, We didn't make it from our car to the cottage that evening, the sloping lawn at a silent 2 a.m. I said, We fucked on the lawn, in the moonlight. I wasn't actually in her yet. To propose reality as a story rather than a story as reality might at least remind you what a prior thing experience is and how we hide it in stories. Or I hadn't in a long time done her condemnation thing, her invocation of goddamn, goddamn this, goddamn you, that she'd done once or twice sexually. I was scared of the lifetime's rage in each of us. She was as strong physically as a small man, but she had all those complexities of overlay and training and much more delicate calibrations. She was casually and wildly cruel, but not toward me, and yet calibratedly so toward the world. She was much more politically savvy than I was. Almost everything in my physical vocabulary became in relation to her even as the thinnest hint of itself, a shade, a shadow of brutality, because the attraction was strong and we'd stayed together long enough to know we would stay together longer. It irritated me profoundly, this eerie strength and weakness of attachment and corresponding freedoms and degrees of rule and permission, degrees, really, of finality. Anyway, I liked to praise her. I liked not doing the other thing, 
the thing of persecution by sexual praise, delivered as condemnation and shrill invective, thrilled invective, chilled rage. In a moment of withdrawal, of catching my breath, the thing of at the crossroads we pause in the moonlight. I saw around me hedges and trees, patient leaves in their kingdoms of air, and I felt in her her impatience with me as a man, the anguish of love wasted on art, on ambition. Grass ended, and Ora's arm was flung across the grayish-dark salvia and ghostly artemisia and white lilies, the stink of dirt and of marigolds. It was her smell, Aura's. Aura's breasts in the moonlight, in the clingingly half-warm air. Ah, 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 I said. Then I howled softly. This is a pagan fuck, Aura said. And she tended to review things in nearly everything. She said, Oh, Arlie, you don't hate women. She raised her arms and put them around my neck again. Uh, you already did this, I said stupidly, peeling her arms off me. I have a tendency to be frequently fatuous, out of touch. I helped her lie down again. I couldn't help thinking, stupidly, that quick fucks were superior because you hardly had time to notice your own fatuousness or hers. She said, let's have a baby. What, here? Outdoors? I said into her ear. I didn't really have to say it. We were body to body, breast to breast. My nose could breathe at the words. I didn't have to speak. I entered her. She helped. I thought things and didn't say them, but merely breathed them. Pictures, words, pleasures, fuck memories, drunken maunderings, drunken superiority, drunken superiorities, all the guest stuff of a fuck, all the stuff that the prick feels, the lower body, the pushily contracting and stiffened and loosening butt, and all the smells in your nose, and the rhythms, the kind of, I don't know, energetic tenderness, the candide naive, the I am lost thing. She's stolen me, kidnapped me. I don't think Aura ever told the truth, even a partial truth. She loved lying, lying and romance. And I, well, I'm a writer and intrinsically naive although not about people. The truth-telling I did used to horrify Aura, sicken her, really. And all the Edenic slynesses, the serpents in the eyes and the crotch, the nests of snakes in us everywhere, in naughty fingers and in scratchy, strokey toes and insteps, where it's all freely now, and in the knowing and blinking and inwardly twisting eyes, and in the sensation of my hair tangling with her hair and my mouth on hers and sweat 
prickling and pickled, partly sour, excited pubic hair in the dark, and my white snake and its snakish dartings and her nest of snakes, or her inner snake winding around mine, and us evolving into birds, birds and snakes, struggling or nymph and satyr. The audience consists of a separate room in each of us, opening from a shifting set of other fields and sensations, of the grass on her back, the odors, of the weight of sexual congress. This has nothing to do with acrobatics, and only a little to do with the outdoors drama. It is mostly only that somehow we are suitable. Ora says it is love. And when she does, I either deny it and tease her or burst out laughing. Are we that lucky? What is clear, what is tangible, is an angrily ambitious drunkenness, insanely flirtatious toward feeling, but somewhat resistant, so that it is hellish and celestial and virginal and moonlit, and if other people let us alone, this would not have to be judged. Various meanings slide by, twistingly appear, slither away in darkness as I pump, and she, truly or not, grows astonished and far off. Celestial, secular, and not unhappy. Each motion, each breath leaves a trail of light. Then I become a shoving elephant kangaroo snail, now moving slowly and a bit greasily and saying, Ah, 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 my chest and head and crotch, enormous seeming, become a shell over sensation and a luminous crawl in sexual space. A slight disapproval or edge of male violence comforts her, but it cannot be real since, as if in its absence, she eases off and drops the nearness of her mind and soul to the clutching, off-putting, readiness in her, in her thighs, in a cunt, she has loosened. She is something like an inward lawn. She floats out in some female fantasy is real way among the stars, a barge-born Cleopatra angel, half a whore, a serious young girl. The more aware I am of her, the more, in alternate moments, I'm aware of my own hands, my own pleasure. I'm curious, and as if tendrilled in my own shoving and off-putting readiness to forget her and plow ahead, chest and mouth and cock, cockaloro. It is a rage here, in her, in the air here, us as judges and responding or drawing up, but we do respond. What is being allowed is some absence of loneliness, the exchange of meanings, uh, perhaps of selves, in the mouth stuff, in the mouth explorations, in the nuzzlings and licks and kisses, even rushingly, briefly, hear the electric runnings of the mind, a truth a chance at some kind of grass-stained, fairly real happiness is here. 
except we know we'll be blackmailed and owned by it if we admit to it, to any of it. It is a peculiar bodiedness that the moment has, the attentiveness, the drunken distances, blown liftingly or sinkingly. Love, a farce, a tragic thing, love of a kind. But is it worth? Not rhetorically, but really. I know better than to trust her sexually in the end stages of a fuck. She is anti-prick, silent, hidden, watchful, an enveloping presence of a fucked woman. It is sort of mathematical, her feeling, not mine, which is ashen and transcendent. Seeds of light break into rays and move otherwise as well. And ghosts of various sorts come and go, a mirror flash of personal meaning and a constant sense of flesh. Ungeometrically, almost knowably, one moves in the web of bribes. Aura moves according to programs, really. Recipes of attention. Do this, then this, add this, then stir, then wait in the physically fiercer guesswork and ambition of curiosity about the next sensation to see what it does. Now add this. Stir and wait. Stir and blink. Oh, fuck. This fleshy wakefulness, Wiley's moment, large, slow, semi-recumbent, Oh, fuck. We are indecent creatures, brooding a lexical and emotional geometry as sophisticated as the white subtleties of the shape of an egg. Go ahead, you come, she says. One feels a certain slickness of sensation, of one's own eminence, of light and meaning representing beauty. It does and doesn't represent beauty this is a gift Aura makes. Perhaps I steal it. The real air is here, and the trance is half dissolved. I can see why people prefer characters to have the abstract bodies of conventional reference, to be bronze in that sense, and not to be merely real. And Forgive me, at sea, on a lawn, in the moonlight. That was Michael Cunningham reading Dumbness is Everything by Harold Brodke. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 1996 and was included in The World is the Home of Love and Death, a collection of stories published posthumously in 1997. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. 
or Joy Williams? Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, what do you think this story is? Is it a love story? It's not a, it's not a piece of nostalgia. It's a piece of experience. Do you think of it as a love story? You know, I think one of the reasons I love it is that I don't think I can answer that question. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could say it's this kind of story or that kind of story. Mm -hmm. You could say it's a love story. You could say it's... You'd say it's a sex story. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's that's pretty obvious. Yeah, but really, one of the things I love about Harold, loved about... I still love about Harold, is... I don't know many writers who've written as well about sex as Harold could. It's hard to write about. And yet it's a form of sex that's so intellectualized. It's yeah. it's not exactly erotic writing. It's not no, suggestive. No, no, no. It's not erotic writing. And I think he was smart to do... Well, I, I, I smart. I think Harold only wrote the way Harold could write. Mm-hmm. But I think if you, as a writer try to be erotic, i.e. try to turn readers on, you often bump up against the incredible variability and unknowability of everybody's own erotic geography. Mm -hmm. What's sexy to me, it may not be sexy to you. I don't mean you literally, but you know, you know what I mean. Because <laughs> uh, I'm sure we're very much into the same things. But, um, <laughs> uh, we mostly keep our erotic natures secret. It's a part of other humans that is not readily visible to most writers, save for a few people you know very well. And I find that it's generally best to do something like what Harold did here, which is set it up and let the reader project whatever feels erotic to the reader. At the same time, Wiley, the narrator, is constantly projecting. All he does through this whole mm-hmm, event mm-hmm. is project what he's, he's... He has this internal commentary. It's almost forensic. Yeah, that that's the kind of writer Harold is. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's either your cup of tea or it isn't. I believe it was Oscar Wilde who said... Everything in the world is really about sex, except sex. Sex is really about power, which I find interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's certainly an interesting way to think about writing about sex, mm-hmm. since writing directly erotically is so tricky. It's going to turn some people on and turn some people off, and you can't know. But if you're thinking in terms of who's in power here and how does the power shift over the course of some erotic interlude, then you have some, something to work with. Then you have something with substance and depth and, and not just slap and tickle. Power is obviously at play in this story, and it's at play in their 
sexual relationship. Yeah, you know, there's much. there's so much talk about how Aura wants to be passive and wants to think of him as the commander. So on the one hand, you have this moment with this drunk couple spontaneously having sex in the grass. And on the other hand, you have something that seems very orchestrated and very thought through. Wiley is constantly calling attention to this. He talks about the uninnocence right. of the event, right, and, right. and he calls her fake, or he's... Well, you know, I think one of the important things to keep in mind about this story is that it's most obviously a story about two people having sex. It's also that relative rarity in American fiction, a story about class. Right, very much so. American writers tend to underestimate class differences, and this is very much a story about Wiley, the Jewish boy from St. Louis who got into Harvard, versus Aura. All right, the money, Aura's money comes from the mafia, which is a kind of a great touch. But 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 she is, and you've, you've, we've seen her in other stories. She's she's the golden girl. She's the, the highborn one. She's the one who belongs at Radcliffe and everything that Radcliffe implies. Wiley is almost literally Wiley the Coyote. Mm -hmm. And there is not any real sense that they are marriageable. Mm -hmm. They're not really going to stay together for the same reason that, that an English king can't marry a commoner, that, mm -hmm. that there's that going on between them too, that whatever feeling they may have and whatever good time they may have in the grass, he is beneath her and there's nothing he or she can do about that. And he tips his hand on that one by calling it a Gatsbyoid romance. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so we get that right from the get-go. Yeah. Here's what, he might, here's he what might, I'm he doing. Might have, he might have left that line out. One of the things I love about, well, all fiction, and certainly contemporary or relatively contemporary fiction, is um, it's not cast in stone yet. Tolstoy isn't really cast in stone either, but he arrived to us that way, whereas a story published in 1996 is still a story in which the hits and the misses are more visible. You can, mm -hmm. you can love a story the way I love this big, strange story, and she'll think, oh, you know, maybe that line you probably could have done without. <laughs> well, that line is part of something that, that I find fascinating about this story. You were saying earlier that Brodke couldn't write about anything other than his own experience, and yet he keeps insisting on the fictionality of this story. He's looking at the landscape, and Wiley says, everything here was fictional and touched with brevity and with a greatly skewed, faintly Gatsbyoid romance. He talks about the fact that he doesn't like the way Aura kisses as a useful plot device. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he likes sex with a kind of storytelling structure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah why, yeah. why does he keep reminding us this is a story? I think what he's really talking about yeah. is the fact that it's impossible to write anything but fiction. Mm -hmm. I frankly don't know for a fact if actual Harold went to this actual place mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. this actual girl. I don't, well, his I don't. first wife was called Aura. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> spelled one letter differently. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, 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 all I'm saying is I, I, I'm not sure if Harold needed to restrict himself to 
events that actually happened. He certainly needed situations in which he had found himself characters that he knew. But I think part of what he's saying when he keeps referring to the fiction of it is the impossible subjectivity of it. Mm -hmm. the, fact, the fact that however he may be trying to render it for readers as it was, in turning it into a piece of writing, you automatically fictionalize it. You automatically give it a kind of life, but also take away from it a kind of life. And I think Wiley, periodically in this story, is sort of agonizing over that fact. There's right. an interlude in which he says, very rough paraphrase, but he says, there's, there's just no way to bring you here. Mm -hmm. I can report back from here, yeah, but it will not be what it is he has, he has that line to, to propose reality as a story rather than a story as a reality. Yes. Might at least remind you what a prior thing experience is. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how we hide it in stories. Yeah. yeah so yeah. There's, it's, it's a difficult line to parse, but he's saying experience is experienced, mm -hmm. has been experienced, mm -hmm. obviously. But this notion of reality as a story rather than a story as reality, which is which is what fiction writers do. They present a story as reality a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. He's and presenting I'm, reality as a story. Absolutely. And it seems like a real, if unanswerable, question. And when the he writer cannot help but distort. And the best the writer can do is hope that the distortions are illuminating rather than obscuring. And it's sort of wonderful that he was still puzzling over it all, even at the end of his life, after so many words written, so many stories. Yeah, he never got complacent. Yeah. He never stopped asking the big questions. There are a few moments, actually, in the story that puzzle me a bit. There's that one moment where Wiley says, if other people let us alone, this would not have to be judged. And I think, well, he's the one who keeps judging it, for one. So, And who are those other people? They're completely alone. I think that's a little bit disingenuous. He's the other people... Who exactly. Won't, who won't leave it's them it's alone. like these voices in his head. Yeah, it, it's an ever so slightly schizoid way of Wiley saying, if I could just not be thinking about writing about this as it's happening, not be analyzing I, it, I could leave us alone and we could just yeah. have this. Yeah. But I am both participant and audience, and writer, and writer. And there's that moment where he's dictating uh, Aura's journal. <laughs> we fucked on the lawn by moonlight, <laughs> and, and they haven't done it yet. It's before they've done it. He's, yeah. he's preparing her, giving her something to write. And you know, he's, he's 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 also contemplating this conundrum that if he had just turned that part of his brain off and just been able to have sex with Aura on the grassy slope, that would have been that, and. Harold would have had that, and she would have had that, but we wouldn't have the story. And they might not have remembered it the next day, given how drunk they were. <laughs> or they would remember it in a fictionalized way. They would grow older with the story version of it in their own minds. I think it's part of that sort of nagging internal voice or voices that, that he can't turn off. That's going on when he, he has this that moment where he says there's a chance at some fairly real happiness here, but we know we'll be blackmailed or mm -hmm, owned by it mm -hmm, if we admit mm -hmm, to it. Mm -hmm. 
he can't he can't pick up the what's being offered. Wiley, aka Harold, is sort of constitutionally unable to accept certain gifts. He's certainly not insensitive to all of it. I mean, look at think of some of those landscape descriptions. The immensity of the view was behind us and off to one side. We had an immensity of silence, an immensity of warmish wind, a breeze really, but not stopping and starting, not made of individual hooks and curls, but because of the great width of the night air, riverine, hugely animal and ghostly, a whispering dragon of a wind. This is not the work of somebody who fails to appreciate no. the beauty of the world. I think this was simply true of Harold, and so it becomes true of Wiley. He can never, ever, ever forget temporality in human relations. He can never forget mortality. He can never forget the fact that by the time I reach the end of this sentence, we're already in the future. Mm-hmm. And that the future will bring whatever it brings, but it's hard for Wiley, a.k.a. Harold, to trust that it will bring good things. So speaking of the end, what do you make of the ending here? Now, some people have actually said they don't think he finished it, that it just sort of <laughs> stops, and we never get to the culmination of the sex act. <laughs> we never get that final mm-hmm. release. We just sort of, the camera pans out and we have this wide shot of this naked couple at sea on a lawn in the moonlight. Do you think that was how he meant to end it? I do. Yeah. The last line is, I can see why people prefer characters to have the abstract bodies of conventional reference to be bronze in that sense and not to be merely real and forgive me at sea on a lawn in the moonlight. I think he's just sort of summing up for us what he has been implying all along, that I've tried to give you something as real as I can make it, and I understand that some readers will prefer a more fictionalized version, a more structured version, a more traditionally told version with a Climax, as, mm-hmm. it, as, it, as it were. <laughs> One of the things that is increasingly true of Harold as he lived and wrote was his refusal to offer a little story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's always been my impression that Harold thought of his stories as little slices Mm -hmm. that he scoops, if you will, out of the impossibly vast story that begins at the beginning of time and ends when the sun supernovas and destroys the universe. And people like that or don't like it, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty rare for a Harold Broadkey story to arrive at what feels like a destination. And I can't say that I'm speaking for Harold because we never talked about this, but I, I believe he would have felt that bringing the train into the station 
It would involve a certain betrayal of life as we experience it. I mean, he even apologizes. Forgive me, I'm not going to yeah. give you bronze. Yeah. I'm just yeah. going to leave you at sea. Brodke is compared often to Whitman, who did similar things yeah. with language. Yeah, yeah. yeah And who's also one of your obsessions, literary well, you know, obsessions. I like, yeah. I like the lavish ones. I do, <laughs> I do. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure, thank you. Michael Cunningham is the author of The Snow Queen, By Nightfall, and Specimen Days, among other novels. A story collection, A Wild Swan, will be published later this year. You can download more than 95 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>